Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So today we're going to have part two of our conversation with Dr. James Gordon, who we have the pleasure of welcoming to the show today. In part one, we explored some of the ways that people can work inside themselves with their own traumatic experiences. And today we're going to kind of pull the lens out a little bit and talk to Dr. Gordon more about his own experience working with people who have been traumatized. As you might expect, the territory here is deep and soulful and challenging. Dr. Gordon shares some stories that have pretty specific descriptions of horrible things happening to people. And if this is challenging territory for you, we completely understand. I wanted to put this little warning label at the beginning of the podcast to let people know that it's really okay to go slow here. If you start feeling uncomfortable, it's okay to disengage from this material. And if you want to leave this episode behind altogether and wait for the next one, we completely understand that. So here's Dr. Gordon. Oh, Jim, I want to, if I could, make a point that I bet you'll agree with. There's no presumption that someone who has been traumatized by another person or a group of people must necessarily interact with their attackers, their persecutors. There might be potentially over time a process of restorative justice or some kind of healing over time. But there's no burden on the person who, to me, to use a very honorable word, was the victim of terrible mistreatment. There's no burden on them necessarily to confront those who've harmed them. So I I suspect you'll agree with that. Absolutely not. Yeah. Over time, it could be really helpful. And I've been very moved myself by reading about accounts of your own work where you bring together people who have, over generations, you know, attacked each other. So the question I have for you, it's kind of implicit in what you said a moment ago, but I want to underline it and let you talk more about it, is the healing power of being loving oneself. In other words, that for someone who's been terribly mistreated and often let down by those who should have been protectors or allies, there's an understandable focus on what I should have received from the justice systems of my country or what I should have received from the kind of parenting I should have gotten. That's a very legitimate focus. But the world will break your heart. (laughs) You know, there's a limit on what we can get from the world and we don't have a lot of influence over that. On the other hand, what can be incredibly healing for people I think I've found who are traumatized is the reparative power of their own compassion for others. Not necessarily at the beginning, their attackers, but for their cat (laughs) or the mouse (laughs) inside the cat's mouth or anyone that they can find compassion or kindness or love for, that is actually healing for the person who's expressing it. And one of the, I think, beautiful things for someone who's traumatized is to appreciate that, you know, they may have done terrible harms to my body. They may have done terrible harms to me in various ways, but they have not destroyed my capacity to love. So I wondered if you could speak to that. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, but I, this is a natural evolution that I've seen to everywhere we've worked. That as, as you begin to take care of yourself, and part of the problem is when we've been traumatized, we devalue ourselves. We've internalized mm-hmm. that abuse. We've internalized that damage that's been done. And so many of us feel like it's our fault. There's something, something wrong with us. We're inadequate, and on top of that, maybe we deserved it, and maybe we brought it on ourselves. 
all the techniques help people to appreciate, help all of us to appreciate ourselves, to appreciate all the possibilities for healing that are there for us. And as far as the forgiveness goes, the most difficult person to forgive often is ourselves Mm. for the ways we may feel that we've been complicit in our own suffering. What I've seen again and again is as people move more into this kind of meditative mind, as they use imaginative techniques, mobilize their imagination and their creativity, they begin to fall in love with themselves and with life again. Part of that, as that continues, it is a natural evolution that we want to share that compassion, that love of life, that appreciation with other people. We start feeling it for other people and we want to share it with other people. So the way I I think about it sometimes, there's a little girl I write about whose father and two uncles and aunt were killed in the 2014 war between Hamas and Israel. She drew herself the solution to a problem in her first, when she first encountered the work and the transformation was to be dead. She was going to, the only solution to these deaths was to die herself and be in the grave with her father. Using these tools and techniques in the ninth group, after having used them in the course of several weeks, she drew herself and the equivalent, the solution to her problem now, her future goal, she drew herself in a white coat with a stethoscope around her neck, Mm. and there was person lying on a table. I said, what's going on? She said, I am a doctor. That's my patient. I'm a heart doctor. There are so many people in Gaza who've had hurt hearts since the war. So this broken-hearted girl, without anyone saying you should be a good girl, you should take care of other people, just by coming in contact with her own capacity for compassion and appreciation and growth, came to this on her own, that what this is the fulfillment for her of her life. And she's now studying to be a dog. I mean, she's only nine. She's nine men. She's 12 now. She's committed to helping and healing other people. As you know, psychologists are now speaking of post-traumatic growth. And this is exactly what we're talking about. But this is a natural process. You don't have to tell people you should do this. You should feel compassion for other people. Mm. It happens if we encourage it and give people the tools and techniques to do it. Thank you, doctor. That's like a that's a wonderful story. It's incredibly stirring. Obviously, it's um, even as a happy story. It's extremely emotionally evocative. And you've been in a position throughout your career to be a professional witness, ally, caregiver, supporter, whatever the right kind of word is here. And I can just tell you, just kind of sitting here and that feeling and hearing and feeling that story, you feel an emotional toll from it. Like, wow, you feel kind of the weight of it. To ask maybe a personal question, what has helped you manage that in your life, that caregiver fatigue or that experience of reciprocal trauma, trauma internalized from another person? I'm searching for the language here because it's a challenging thing to talk about. But what has your experience with that been and what has helped you maintain that giving mindset? Early on, when I was you know, was a medical student and then when I was a psychiatric resident working with very troubled people, just being able to talk about what was going on. I was in therapy. I was in analysis. I had somebody to talk to. I also had a wonderful girlfriend that when I was a resident, I could talk to her about it. 
And that, that was, I think it's important that people who are doing this work have others to talk with. When we work in these situations during a war, after a war, in a community ravaged by the opioid addiction or after a wildfire, the end of every day, our team, our Center for Mind-Body Medicine faculty and staff come together and we share our experiences. And it's not about somebody else's psycho, quote, psychopathology, not about their problems. It's about exactly what you're suggesting, what's happening with us. Now, for me, over the years, it's become easier and easier. I still, I cry. First of all, like when I'm with somebody who's gone through something, like this little girl, Azar, when I was with her, when she described at much greater length what had happened to her, happened to her family, there were tears in my eyes. So I don't suppress my feelings. I think that's the first thing. Sometimes I'm overwhelmed. I tell another story of a man telling me about watching 21 members of his family massacred. I was overwhelmed and speechless for a bit. And all I could do was tell him, I'm overwhelmed. I I appreciate your sharing. Stick around. Hang in there with me. Let's see what happens. And I do. I relax. I do that soft belly breathing. Sometimes I might shake and dance to allow it to move through me. And then I just come back. And for the most part, I feel doing this work is energizing. I don't think we have to burn out at all. I think that the part of the problem is the way that professions operate. We protect ourselves too much. I don't feel I'm protecting myself at all. I'm just, but I'm also a bit realistic. I feel the pain. I let myself feel the pain. I also understand that it is not my pain. It's that other person's pain. And I do what I can. I focus on what I can do. So being more, and again, this is just like your dad said, being more meditative, this is what makes it so much easier to do this work and possible to do this work. And then also when you are feeling overwhelmed, having people and a place where you can, where you can talk about what's going on. I don't, need, I don't need an analyst anymore. I just need to be able at the end of the day when we've gone through, you know, seen so much suffering, to be able to share that with other people. The other thing is to remember, really, I I think about this, I don't live in Gaza. I don't live in post, you know, hurricane Puerto Rico. I have a house. So I need to remember that. And my own trauma, of course, still is at times overwhelming to me, but other people's No, it's theirs. It's not mine. I think this is really important for therapists who are listening to us. And a lot of our work with therapists is to help them be present with their own trauma, be present with other people, and not take it on. We don't have to take it on. How do you deal with anger? I think about a natural response to terrible things that have happened is with a sense of injustice, moral disgust even and outrage and anger. And these are, in my view, adaptive emotions that tend to promote pro-social activities of various kinds. Yet on the other hand, they can be very poisonous to individuals and and to relationships. I just kind of wonder here, you've been in so many situations that are just mind-boggling in the injustice and the horror. How do you deal with anger about that? Well, if, if I, when, when I feel the anger, I, I, 
I scream, I jump up and down, I pound pillows, I do fast, deep breathing, I do shaking, I get it out. I get it out of my body. I do my best not to hold on to it, and then I do what I can do. But I think the other thing about being in these situations is it's, it is humbling. I mean, there's only so much that I can do, and so I focus, I focus on what I can do. And also, you know, I, I do my best to to speak to other people. I write about it. I suppose a Freudian would say I was sublimating, uh-huh. but that's important. And I'm, you know, I, I've been very angry. For example, right now, I'm, I'm very angry about what's happening in Syria. I'm very angry that that our government has betrayed the Kurds who fought with us and the special forces troops who. You know, we're in the trenches with the Kurds and yeah. and the civilians who are being overrun. I mean, it, it, it does get me angry. And so I let out the anger as best I can, and then I, I do what I can. We do work with Syrian refugees. We are going to be working, it looks like, with returning ISIS fighters and their families in Central Asia, helping mm. them to reintegrate into the society. So I think, I think this is really important for, for that I can, you know, release my anger for myself, but also to do whatever we can that's constructive. I'm fortunate because I have the opportunity, I have the wherewithal, I have the organization to be able to do something, but there's nothing like doing something positive. As Freud would say, nothing like sublimating that anger into some kind of positive action to make use of it. Well, to kind of extend it further then, you're someone who can do a lot of things about the injustices, the, the horrors we see on the television. But for a lot of people, they talk about a sense of helplessness and a kind of like helpless outrage. And I think sometimes myself about the functions that helpless outrage serves to maintain tyranny of one form or another. In other words, tyrants like people to feel helpless, like they can't do anything about it. So here we are feeling helpless to do something about global climate change or things that are happening, let's say, in Syria, literally as we do this interview right now. What can you offer to people who just don't have a life in which they can be that directly instrumental or effective in helping things be better and yet are still outraged and concerned about and have compassion for uh, people who are being really burdened and wounded in various ways. I think that what we've seen and what we do is that we're pretty much wherever we're working, the people we work with are finding ways to do something positive in those situations. Yeah, But it starts often with overcoming those feelings of helplessness and hopelessness in ourselves. It may seem a little beside the point to tell somebody to do soft belly breathing, but what happens is, as they notice a change in in their body, it could be relaxed shoulders or quieter mind, they're experiencing their capacity to do something. They're no longer hopeless and helpless to deal with something that's happening to them. And then what we do is we open up the opportunities and give people the opportunities and allow them to use their imagination to discover exactly what you're discussing, what you're bringing up, some way that they can make a positive contribution. I don't tell them, but they figure it out. It comes to them because 
they do want to take that step. So, for example, we're working in after the shootings in Parkland. We're working with uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, and we're working with all of Broward County, 270,000 kids, 30,000 teachers. You know, we're moving, this is our second year of work with them. A number of the kids have become peer counselors. They're using our model and they're teaching other kids in the school. Kids are very anxious. They're very angry. They're very anxious about what's happening in their schools. They're teaching other kids these techniques. And then the kids are going to do what they're going to do. Some of them will become activists against, uh, you know, against gun violence. Some of them, you know, will help other kids deal with the stress of, of going to college and preparing for exams and stuff like that. But they're doing something active. Some will be making films about what's going on in the school because that's their way of being creative. The other thing that's interesting that, that we've done by working with whole communities, I think this needs to be looked at, Rick and Forrest, as a, it's a public health issue. Mm, so interesting, yeah. What we see in the communities that we work with is we invite people to come to our trainings and people come who have been mistrustful at, at odds with each other, people of different ethnicities, people of different economic status, and they get to meet each other and they get, and we're not, we don't say you're here to become best friends with each other, but just in the course of being together and learning together and sharing with each other, they begin to develop new solutions. It's a, but it's also a question of understanding, that everybody understanding that this is a, a community-wide problem. And here in the United States, it's everybody's on edge, more or less, at least some of the time. So we need to understand that, and then we need to come together and explore what's possible with each other. Yeah, that's a great reflection and a really good piece of advice as well, and kind of a, a good framing for the last half of our conversation here. You've had such an expansive career and such an expansive engagement with this topic in a really deep way, and I kind of just think back to you as a, you know, 20 some odd, a 30 some odd, kind of moving into this kind of work for the rest of your life. And based on all of the experiences you've had, based on all of the things that you learn, I just wonder if you could go back in time and talk to that person, say something to them, what would you want to tell them? I'd say, don't sweat it, baby. <laughs> <laughs> what a great piece of advice. Because you know, all the things that look so terrible and feel so overwhelming wind up being a part of a whole life. I've actually never thought of having a career. I have to say that. I've always been, been wanting to do what felt most interesting and right for me to do. And that's sometimes it's gotten me in trouble, of course, but I'm not entirely averse to trouble. But it's helped me because I've always felt, you know, once I got over kind of the late, early, really early 20s, when I first was in medical school, confusion about who I was. Once I became clear that I wanted to be a doctor, I've done what felt right to do. Even if so many people were saying, no, you're crazy, you shouldn't do it, it's not right to do. If I had a sense that it was right, I, I did it. So I learned that lesson. And I learned it partly because other people encouraged that in me. So it's important to be open and I was open to people who could teach me. So my English professor at Harvard, but was a beautiful man who just was so kind and so generous to me and so many people. My psychotherapist who had worked with the 
who was then working with the black kids who were integrating the schools in New Orleans in the late 50s and early 60s. These people were examples to me. So I would say to the younger me, you, you were pretty smart about that. You reached out to people, and I would encourage everyone to do that. So find those people and, and learn to trust your own intuition. Joseph Campbell famously said, follow your bliss. That's good, but even when it's not so blissful, <laughs> and even when it seems like a totally ridiculous thing, if something inside you is saying, this is something you really need to do, everybody else may be saying it's foolish. Do it and see what happens. It's all an experiment. This life that we're in is an experiment. So find out your answer. It may not be my answer, but find out your answer. There's so much fear. Everybody's so afraid all the time. So and here again, meditation is very helpful and relaxing and saying, oh, it's just this fear. It's just making it a little bit smaller, a little bit less overwhelming. I mean, I think that that's a, a great reflection. It's a great reflection on both your life and the lives of other people that you're working with. I want to throw in one last question. I know we have a minute here. So what do you consider for yourself to be the most important thing you do inside your mind every day for your own well-being? Reminding myself to take a deep breath. (laughs) (laughs) When I get all wound up, saying to myself, just take some breaths, just, and see what happens. That's one piece. The other is a corollary. Relax with whatever is happening. Change is always going on. Just relax, even if this is painful. I was experiencing this last night, some very painful memories. I said, relax, feel the pain. Don't pretend it's not there. Accept it. Mm. So I did that. I breathed, and it changed. So that's what I would say. Breathe deeply, relax, accept whatever is there. Beautiful. Thank you. Just speaking personally for a moment, this has been really wonderful. So thank you so much, Jim, for doing this today. It's really, truly been a pleasure. Thank you, Forrest. It's nice to meet you. And thank you, Rick. I really appreciate I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate your having, interviewing me and introducing me to your son. So that's it for our conversation with Dr. James Gordon. Today, Dr. Gordon shared some really stirring, touching, and deeply soulful stories of the work that he's done with people to help them move through their own traumatic experiences. And he shared for a while some of the approaches, practices, and beliefs that have allowed him to maintain that stance of giving to others, even through the experience of many different extreme situations of working with people who had been deeply traumatized. I can say personally that even just listening to these stories in this context of a podcast where we're we're talking to somebody through a computer over the phone, we're not even in the room with them, uh, much less in the room with the people who have been actively traumatized and, and had these horrible experiences, and I was emotionally stirred by it. So I can only imagine the work that he's had to do in his own life to process out some of those feelings. And again and again, He's really emphasized here during this conversation the importance of feeling the feelings, of feeling the anger, feeling the hurt, feeling the sadness, and allowing that to flow through the body. And it's when we hold on to those feelings, clinging to them or or pushing them down so that we don't feel anything at all, that that's when people tend to run into real long-term damage from their experience. 
And again and again, something that he emphasized was the importance of acknowledging the feelings as they truly are. Experiencing them, letting them flow through you, not denying them, not pretending that something isn't there. We talked for a while about the experience of people who might be very distant from that traumatic experience, watching it on the TV or feeling like they can't do anything at all, that that helpless outrage, that feeling where nothing that we can do can actually make much of a difference, and what we can do to lessen that experience in our lives. Dr. Gordon then closed with a a very soulful reflection uh, and a very you know, kind of funny reflection in its own way on speaking to himself as a young person and the advice that he would give himself. So again, to remind you, Dr. Gordon's new book is The Transformation. If you're interested in learning more about it, I'll include a link to it in the description of today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast in general, we'd really appreciate it if you would take the time to subscribe to it, leave a rating and maybe a review through the platform of your choice. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening. 